Hello and welcome to Sidelow, the technology podcast from Edelman, London. I'm Jermaine Dallas and today we're talking about how data is used or even misused by brands and the media. It's the era of fake news and social media and we're changing the way we communicate and the way we consume information. Today we're delving into the debate about what the comms industry and brands should do to make sure their data is trustworthy and squeaky clean. With me at Sideload HQ are two people who live and breathe data, which probably explains the respiratory problems I've had for years. Maya Golan is a senior design researcher here at Edelman, working on research projects with our tech specialists. And Rich Davenport is one of the high-flying strategy experts from Edelman Intelligence. That's our specialist research division, if you don't know. Richard, Maya, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So um, let's look at the good data side of things first. So what does it look like when data is used well? Yeah, so um, in my view, when data is used well, it's actually when it serves um, a purpose and has true value to individuals and therefore real influence. So I think good data can help, um, for example, in our line of work, it can really help our clients inform their customers, solve real business challenges and um, that's kind of one side of it. On the other side, it can also lead to actual change. So informing government, leading to policy change, and starting a real public debate on a topic. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, obviously it depends on the objective of the, the data that you're collecting and the reasons why you're doing it. But I think it allows our clients, good data allows our clients to speak from a position of authority a lot of the time. Um, and it, can, it takes a lot of, a lot of the time will take a... A, a hypothesis or someone's view or subjective view to being very objective and I think that's the key the key reason for data being robust being correct being you know well thought through and well planned is um, to be it allows you to be objective um, and 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 be I guess um, better informed than you that the idea of good data would be to be better informed than you were before you started um, and informed in the right way Great. So let me ask this then. What are the common traps that people fall into uh, when they use research to generate news and what effect does that have? Um, that's a really good question. And I think we, you know, you see it from time to time. Um, I think there's a, a couple of key things for me that I think people do. I think the first one is uh, generalization or sensationalism. Um, so you might take um, the data and, and draw inferences from it that are incorrect. We might have a smaller sample set of people that you've spoken to and then broaden that out to involve everybody, um, incorrectly so. So sort of when we start talking about statistical significance and all these sort of technical terms, but um, essentially it's just expanding the area that you know about to, to then talk about groups of people you don't actually or that informed about um, from the research that you've got at your disposal. Um, I think the other big one is uh, almost being biased to your objectives um, without any room to pivot. So I think when you when you are setting out on the on the route to getting your data, doing your research or whatever, you're already slightly biased to the fact that you want the data maybe to say something. And I think especially in the industries we work in, where brands want to say something and want they already sometimes have what they want to say in mind before they even start the research. Um, there's no room to pivot if the research doesn't say exactly what, what they wanted to say. And that's where you get in that, that grey area of sort of bending the truth or stretching the data to say something that maybe it's not quite set out to do. Um, or isn't really saying. So I think that's that's probably two two big areas. I think. How do how do you avoid doing that? Especially the the latter point that you made. That a lot of the time we want our, our research to um, prove or disprove a particular point. Um, how do we do we have to go in there more open minded? I think that's it. I think that's the the hardest task. 
um, which is probably why it's a lot easier when you're not within a project team, I guess. Like for, for Edelman Intelligence, for example, we work with all the teams in the business, so we're not necessarily massively embedded in a campaign or, and we can be quite sort of objective and step back a little bit and do try to do the right thing. I think when you're more in a client and more in a campaign and you've got this great idea and you know where you want to go with it and you think it's going to be great, sometimes that can then bring in that bias. And I think it's the job of us as research practitioners and experts to be quite robust, quite, um, and to be sort of forceful sometimes and to do the, do the right thing and do the live the Edmond values and say, you know, sometimes this, this isn't saying what you want it to say. So what actually can we say and what should we be saying? Um, and it can, it can open up new avenues and often actually you end up with something even better because it's because it's truthful. Exactly. I totally agree. I think it's it's exactly our, our role and um, it, what kind of makes a difference is kind of keeping the integrity of the study and then those new directions, as Rich was saying, they can lead to incredible results that neither us or the team or the client were expecting but are grounded in, in, um, in data. So we should be prepared to be surprised by the research we're generating. We always say you should be prepared to pivot so that you have to have space to pivot. If you are engaging research too late or if you are already too far down the path that you can't then step back and, and move slightly to the in a different direction, um, yeah, that's, that's what we'd always suggest is the, the way forward or the best way forward. And there's also industry standards and best practices that we all follow. And again, that's kind of where we, we draw the lines and say what can and can't be done. So there are um, kind of best practices and guidelines for, for um, approaching research. Yeah, 100%. And I think transparency comes to that as well. I think if you are, you should, if you don't feel comfortable sharing what you've done or how you've asked it or what the analysis you've done or the data that you're using, you probably, there's a probably reason for that. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes that some of the misuses of data in the, and the areas where we, once you've fallen into some of these common traps, you know you're in a bad spot because you're not, you feel uncomfortable being transparent sometimes, I think. Sure. Um, so I think setting yourself up with the, with the understanding that you're going to put this out there and be completely transparent with everything you've done, the way you've asked the question, who you've asked it to, etc., always means you're going to be robust, follow all the guidelines that, that are set out and, and all the best practice. And you see that as well when, when we're using secondary research. So when we're doing desk research and, and looking at other data sources and re, um, research that has been conducted by other um, organizations. And the first thing you go to is the methodology section and you check, is it being fully represented? Is it accurate? What was the sample? What was the size? So. Um, I think the same goes for the research projects that we that we manage. Um, you have to be fully transparent, and that has to be clear. So, if you're following those guidelines, then there can't be any mistakes. What are some of the um, the implications of when we do fall into these traps? Um, I just I think it can it can damage your um, brand reputation. I think because if you are misrepresenting data and your customers consumers find out about that. Um, it, it, it's going to erode the trust that you've built up over over a longer, much longer period of time, um, and it just takes one bad data point to to do that. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's. This is an interesting one, and let's start pointing the fingers, then, shall we? So, who's most at fault for twisting the stats? So, is it the brands? Is it the media? Or is it the the public on social media? I think this is a really interesting. Um point for discussion and I think we could just talk the whole hour even just on this question. I also really like to get your view from the media side. I think you're the, the one in the room that, um, that can give us that perspective. But I would say that it's, it's a mix of all. So obviously brands have a message to get across. The media um, want to attract readers and in a similar way people today are becoming their own brands and they also have a, a kind of 
want to inform and share content. So there is kind of a push from the media to generate stats. And oftentimes when I think of, of the work we're doing and when we get to the planning phase of a research project is like, okay, but what are the big stats we need? Like, what are the headlines? What's the story we're going to tell? Um, and I'm, I'm not always like, it's often presented as a need from the media side. And I'm not really convinced that as that that's actually a requirement from the reader side. So do as a reader, do I need that 80% stat to kind of understand the research or trust the data in a way? So I, I think that's a really interesting, like, where is this? I, I'm, I've always been, so my background is more qualitative um, as, a, as opposed to quantitative. And I'm always curious about like, is that really an actual need that comes from the kind of the, the human behavioral side? Um, or is it kind of um, something that's developed along um, over the years from the media side? But I think that's kind of the challenge, like looking at, again at the planning phases with teams is that when you have kind of the media hat on, you have to think of the story and the headlines and have that in mind. But as a researcher, you really want the data to speak for itself and tell its own story and again, be, um, be reliable. So it's that kind of fine balance and always keeping to, to kind of um, the industry best practices and guidelines and making sure that your, your study is, is, um, is robust, but um, in terms of the blame, I would say it's it's definitely a mix. And I don't know, what do you think about the whole the media side in terms of of the stats? Like, where do you think that that need comes from? I think the media always wants that big headline story, don't they? And I think that that's part of the that's part of the problem. And then the debate goes then to why does the media want that big stat? Is it because that's what the audience wants. So it's like, it's a chicken and egg situation, I think. But but Rich, who's at fault, in your opinion? Uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. I think um, I think everyone in the chain of from creation to sharing um, has a responsibility, really, to, to to try and stay as true to the to the data as possible and the stats as possible. Um, who's responsible for the for the for the rise of fake news? I think it's it's. I think the, the you know brands and and uh, individuals are, ben- are the beneficiaries of this, so they must you know they have to take some responsibility for that, um, absolutely. But I think equally, we as individuals, I think, are responsible for um, or need to take more responsibility for for knowing that we are influencers ourselves. We are influencing people the way that people. Um, when, you, when you say we, we as in everybody, everybody, anyone okay, who's sharing public, anything, yeah. the general public, anyone who's sharing anything across their their, their social platforms should take responsibility for what they're sharing and, and you would hope would have some, um, m- feel some moral obligation um, to not mislead or misrepresent. However, that's an absolutely, um, completely unrealistic, I think, expectation of, of people. I don't think that they'll ever, will ever get to that point. So therefore, and you know, to, therefore that means that, you know, that we need to do more as, a, as an industry, as, as research agencies, as brands, um, and those that are more influential to sort of control that and question and, and, and question fake data or misuses of data when, when they're spotted and when we're aware of it. Fake news you, you mentioned there, it's, it's, and it's a big talking point now, but the misuse of data itself, it, it's not a new phenomenon, is it? Definitely not. I think it's like the intentionally misleading or deceptive fake news has always been around. I definitely think that it's not a new phenomenon, and I, I just think that it's, it's every, like, a lot of things today with technology, with internet, with social media, and kind of this global network that we now have, everything is just much more extreme, much faster, um, and just spreads so much quicker. And 
there's obviously also the political and economic aspects, and we see like the current investigations into Russian involvement in the, the elections, and we see the influence around um, Brexit and um, different issues in the UK. So that's just how it's it. That's kind of the extreme version of it in 2017 with um, with social media and the internet. But I definitely think like if we we go back and think of even um, first prints and publications that there's always it's always been around. So, do digital platforms have a responsibility to stop the spread of fake news? Uh, and if so, how do they do that? In a way, technology is part of the problem, but it also also has a potential to be the solution in a way. And you see, like more and more, the public debate around and criticism on tech companies and how they need to change their services and take more responsibility. And I think that is really driving change. And just today, I think it was that Google announced that it's dedicating more than 10,000 um, staff to kind of rooting and, 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 and pulling out um, violent content on YouTube in 2018. So I think more and more over the next year, we'll see more initiatives like that. And again, it's in a way it's coming from the public, from all of us understanding that there's a joint responsibility, but the tech companies will actually put this in practice and make these changes. And definitely, for in my view, there's a responsibility and they're kind of waking up to that now. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that it's, you know, social platforms are the sort of mandatory point of passage for, for fake news. Like you have to go through social platform to start that start that sort of virality of your of your the fake news off, right? So they must have responsibility to control to control that, remove the, the content that they know is um, misleading or, or not true um, to the facts. Um, before and also before that then gets too big that the damage is already done and it's already been shared too too broadly so I think they have to act also act very quickly which is a, it's a big challenge for them I think the, the speed at which news spreads these days um, means that you know it's a, it's a big challenge for, for these brands to, to, to come up against but I think it's, it's it couldn't be more important we can see how impactful fake news has been over the last 12 months and it's only going to get worse unless they step up and, and do more Cool. Well, um, we're going to talk a bit more about how you make sure the data that you use is believable and reliable. But first, let's take a look in the rearview mirror and have a listen back to what the last episode of Sideload sounded like when Mobile World Congress was on the agenda. It's about making sure that you're seen, well, seen and are innovating for your customers. And, you know, technology is seen as, you know, the bleeding edge of innovation almost by definition. Uh, and that's why brands like to be associated with that, I think, you know, that they're really trying hard, trying new ideas, trying to fit into their customer's lifestyle. Um, because you're seeing, you know, the, the world's you know, accelerating in terms of the pace of change. And if you don't keep up with that, then you're going to be one of the, the victims. And you've seen that if you look at, you know, stock market indexes, they're, you know, they're, they're up and down these days. They used to be a lot more consistent, you know, decades ago. And I think that shows that the, the world's becoming more dynamic and therefore you need to continually be innovating, continually trying new things to make sure that you are, you know, at the cutting edge and, and, and working hard for your customer's attention. Um, and that's a really important area. And, you know, the automotive space is going through a, a period of change in that respect. And so they realise that being involved in NWC, they will get these new ideas and make sure that they are, you know, recognised as, as, as still, you know, current still very innovative and, and, and worthy of, of customer attention.
You're listening to Sideload and today we're talking about good data versus bad data and how to distinguish between the two. Uh, we're still here with Maya Golan and Rich Davenport who both deal with this on a daily basis. Uh, so let's talk about this one then. What responsibility does a comms agency have in particular uh, to making sure that the research study is kosher? Uh, I think full responsibility. I think if you are um, creating or executing research to use to, to share with um, consumers or, or even to input into a company strategy, your responsibility is that that data is fully robust and and, va- and completely valid, I guess, um, and statistically, um, not just from a from a media standpoint, but from a from an analysis standpoint. Um, I think that I guess the the challenge with that in this in the industry we work in is this, the speed at which we work um, sometimes can can then mean that you are forced to maybe try and um, speed up what should ordinarily be an incredibly long process um, and any you know any good researcher will tell you that pro- you know projects take super amounts of time um, but timelines in, in especially in the comms world just don't always um, give you that that possibility mm. um, so but it's but it's the responsibility of the the research team to you know to push back on on, on clients on, on even people within Edelman um, and you know to do things in the right way um, to because the responsibility for all data starts with the people that are collecting it. Yeah. And I'd say that in both of our roles, in a way, kind of the hat that we have is to say, that's a no-go, um, we can do that, we can't do that. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a line that we don't cross. And then again, going back to kind of the industry standards and and following kind of the guidelines of whether it's the Market Research Society or other um, kind of authorities that, um, give those guidelines yeah and I think also you'd have no control it's hard to have control over your data once it leaves your your area of your team or your close team and I think the responsibilities when we're doing you know large international thought leadership pieces that are going to go to lots of different agencies and lots of different hubs around the, around the world you you need to be robust in your research and also in how you've um, how you communicate that to the teams and how that they should be using it and how they should not be using it, um, it that responsibility sits with us at least to a, to a point you know, you can't control the uncontrollables. You can't necessarily control everything that they do with that data. But you have to have done everything you can in your, in your within your um, realm of influence to make sure that that data is is treated correctly. Yeah. And here, I think it's interesting also the role that the media has as well in kind of testing and confirming and 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 kind of making sure that things, the stats actually add up and meet. Um, meet those standards so I think that's also an interesting point kind of the, um, the back and forth between um, the media the clients the teams so even when it's taken into kind of different markets across the globe it's still kept in perspective um, and it's in the methodology is still is still clear to all sides involved so could you expand on that a bit about about the media what role the media plays so again um, I think any journalist is just like we talked about the responsibility of, of, um, of fake news, so just like we have a responsibility towards um, the public and making sure that the data and the research is credible, so too um, does the journalist and the media publication. So kind of the same process that we're going through, they are definitely going through as well. So I think there's that kind of the discussions that we will oftentimes have with, um, with journalists is um, they are focused a lot of times on the methodology and I think the more detailed and the more professional they are, the more they'll be interested in that and they'll take the time to understand kind of 
what went into the research, what the source of the data is, what the sample is, and they'll also include that within their, their work or include links to where um, readers can, can reference that. Yeah, yeah and, I, and, I th- and I think building on that, I think that um, we've seen that over the last few years, how much that responsibility, journali- I think journalists are, um, are feeling um, because we are doing, our t- research teams are building and we are bringing in more and more across the industry, not, not just within Edelman and Edelman Intelligence, but and they're bringing in um, more and more strict guidelines, processes, pushing back a lot more than, than they probably previously did do in the last five to ten years, um, which is a sign that they appreciate that they have a responsibility for what they're sharing um, as much as we have a responsibility to give them the right, um, the right stuff. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, and I think the, that responsibility chain has to go as far as we possibly can because we because as we discussed earlier, we potentially you can't then expect the people at the end who are sharing it, you know, your, your normal consumers, everyday people, to take too much responsibility for that. We have to, we would love them to, but we have to, we have to take that up ourselves sure. um, as much as possible. And I think, like, think of your, think of it as yourself as a reader when you're reading a piece in the news and that references a study. Today, I find if that study isn't referenced, if it's not hyperlinked, if the the, the date the year of when that study took place or the exact um, organization that took the uh, part of, of um, and led the research is not there, then I automatically start to question the kind of reliability of that data. And I think people are, again, becoming more and more aware of that. So it is becoming an issue. And if you don't have that, then is it credible? What's the source? And then again, leading back to our discussion on fake news. Mm-hmm. So what needs to happen to ensure that the data that you end up with is robust enough for an entire campaign to stand on it? I think the first, the, the most important thing is to understand right from the very uh, beginning of any project what the objectives are and how you're going to use the data. I think if you have that clarity of um, the execution, the campaigns, the, what, you know, the, the life of that data, um, you have a much better chance of setting up um, a study in the right way to allow for you to use that data correctly and not incorrectly. Um, and aside with, to that, with that, I think it's very important that you understand as a, as a team um, what you can and cannot do with the data, what the data is allowing you to go and do and what it will not, what you can't do. So you're not doing that generalization or you're not, you know, you're not um, too far down the line of planning something and then you realize actually you, we can't use the data for this. And so I think upfront, there's a lot upfront that needs to be done to make sure that um, the, the data you get at the end is as, as robust as possible for what you want to do with it. And I think that really shows in, in the work that we're doing. So if I look at kind of how over the past three years that I've been on the tech team, how the research projects that we do have, have, have evolved from a methodology um, point of view, then we're actually, I think, moving towards um, more of a mixed methods of Approach where we're not just looking at, at a quant study or a qual study, which were oftentimes um, very divided. We're looking at um, combining the two. So we'll usually have like a qualitative exploration phase where we're kind of gathering the themes. Um, maybe this involves um, desk research and social listening. And then we're actually um, conducting interviews, um, speaking to industry experts, speaking to um, our, our clients, speaking to the, our clients' customers as well. And once we have kind of that initial um, um, phase of data collection, we then have um, so much information to actually inform um, a, a quant side and to inform kind of our survey design. So then when we go into field, we're kind of 
we're not, it's no longer just our initial hypothesis or what we wanted to prove, it's actually grounded in, in data already. And we're kind of trying to challenge ourselves, trying to see if kind of the survey then um, validates or challenges our findings. So on Turich's point, when we actually have the output, it's, it's so robust, it's so rich. Um, and we can, we can give kind of all the angles to that specific story. So it's no longer just uh, the numbers behind it. There are, is kind of, there's the people behind it as well. Um, and there's kind of all the, the current state of the market and kind of the ecosystem around that. I, th I think what we, we live in a world where now it's, it's actually quite easy now to do research um, sort of self-sufficiently. So research agencies, sample suppliers, the, the people that have control, access to all the people that you can ask questionnaires are coming up with um, quicker and easier ways for you to field a survey, for example. Um, and you can get your results in 24 hours and, and, and whatever. But if you're not um, asking those questions in the right way, if you're not, um, you know, taking advantage of the experts that sit in teams that have that expertise in in doing in executing this research, and if, if, you know, it's a it's a learned skill. The dangers are that your your questionnaire could be biased. It could, be, you know, it, there's and that can impact anything. That could be desk research. That can be how you write a taxonomy. That could be how you interpret the data that's coming out of a, a social listening tool or whatever. So I think the, one of the key things is absolutely involving or at least consulting with experts. Um, when, when conducting research, I think that the danger is you can feel like it's actually quite easy um, and, it, and it can be quite easy. But if you have a questionnaire or, or a setup of a, of, a, of a project which is not done in the right way, it will come back to, to bite you in the end. Um, yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, that's one of the, the biggest dangers of it not then being robust. Sure, um, and, and that's why you don't use um, Survey Monkey, but use experts. It's it, it, exactly right, and, I, and it's not to say that we, you know, you know, from an Edelman Tedges point of view, we don't we don't necessarily have to do everything at all. Right? That's not what we we're here for. But there's there's um, it's even just the, the consultation, the, the the collaboration, the you know, there's expertise across this entire business, which we should always be tapping into um, when we're doing this. You know, when, we, when you're doing any type of research, to, just to ensure that you're doing it in the right way, and you're not missing something or not. You're not thinking something. You're being objective, and you're not being biased by your by your by your objectives. Cool. Yeah. And I'd exactly. say it's, it's also less the platform. It's more like you were saying the expertise. It's it's having that that knowledge, that kind of um, that industry knowledge to know where the pitfalls can be, what you need to look out for, what is considered credible, what wouldn't be, and how to frame the questions. So it's all those things. So it's more the expertise rather than the actual um, technique or exactly. tool. Exactly, because you have to understand the limitations of um, what it is you're doing. All research, you know, has limitations, and that's you know that's that's, that's just a, that's just a fact. And it doesn't matter if you're doing a, a longitudinal academic study at a university or you're doing some commercial market research. There's always limitations with the research you're doing. Um, but it's, if you don't have an understanding of those limitations, that's when the danger is coming. Can you give me an example of how you've used data as the ace up your sleeve in a campaign? Yeah, it's a tough one. Like we've, we've. Uh, I guess we don't, you know, EI. We don't necessarily um, do all the fun stuff and create all the campaigns. We usually are creating the data to, to feed into it. I think we've we sort of famous for a couple of big stats that I think they've, you know, pinned a lot of thought leadership around. So there's the Dove Real Beauty one always springs to mind with the four percent of women think they're they're beautiful. There's the Omo work we did last year for um, around. Um, kids outdoor, getting outdoor play and so I think it was 76% of kids in the UK play outside for an hour or less 
um, which is less than a maximum security prisoner gets time outside. So some of these stats we, you know, were fantastically useful for the teams because I think it gave them a real focal point for some really, really powerful thought leadership. And I think for us, I think if I speak on behalf of the team, I think that's the stuff where you feel like you're making a difference. It's the stuff that's the most rewarding for us. Um, and that's where we always, you know, we always feel super happy when you know when you've got that stat and you think that you know that's fantastic that is exactly what we need to to really drive this campaign and get as much you know get as much coverage as possible and, and really get it out there and if you're doing it for the right reasons and it's in social purpose based and it's all the more rewarding and i can tell by the smile on your face you're very passionate about those types of well things. yeah well, you, get a, you have to get a little <laughs> bit geeky about this stuff sometimes i think yeah, yeah. and having pride in what you, in, in the actual results and, and the fact that when projects are success, successful sorry yeah um yeah, I guess a, a recent example is um, launched um, a big research project for Microsoft, so the culture of digital, digital transformation. And um, basically, we were working with them on kind of, you know, one of the main challenges companies buy the tech, um, they have it in house, but then kind of getting people to, to, to actually adopt the technology and use it and go through that transformation internally. And it really was the aim was to inform their customers and help them solve that challenge. And um, going back to my point earlier on kind of the ways that we're working now, so it was a real uh, big project that we worked in collaboration with Goldsmiths University. And we did um, a kind of quant qual mixed uh, method study, but we also spoke to a lot of um, Microsoft customers. Um, we had um, workshops with kind of general population, just people on kind of the ways they work at different stages of the organizations at different different stages of the digital transformation and the results were really it was it was quite exciting to to see and I was lucky enough to actually sit in the launch of the study at um, Future Decoded um, so again it's not only having that great thought leadership and leading into um, to really good um, and strong media results it was also seeing how it's now used um, internally as a sales tool it's also used um, obviously to inform um, kind of organizations and help them and aid them to make these changes internally. So it's seeing that full process and I'm I'm really looking forward to, to coming back to it in a year's time and, and, and hearing kind of reviewing and hearing what changes it's actually led to. How can tech provide more accurate ways of collecting data at the source? I think it's more, it, it, it's less, obviously tech um, has a big part and there's so many tools and, and available now and the way we conduct research is changing but to me is actually interesting like thinking about this i think it's more of how um tech and people work work more and more alongside and i think the example of of how um teams and youtube and, and google and how they're in, in facebook how they're they're having these joint teams of like um the algorithms and the people so it's almost like to to kind of challenge algorithmic bias you have you bring in teams of people to kind of recheck and reconfirm the data and then to confirm people's bias to kind of challenge people's bias you bring in the algorithms and, and the, the the tech so I think it's a it's a kind of um, it'll always be in my view that kind of man plus machine um, collaboration where it's kind of each side is is, is, ch is checking the the credibility and reliability of the other I think you can't really disconnect that, um, no matter how much um, tech is evolving and changing. But what do you think? Well, I'm quite old school as well. I think that um, 
I think that the work we do in, in the secondary space is, you know, it's absolutely, it's, it's fascinating, it's mind-blowing sometimes what you can do now. Um, but I think there's also a danger that you then step away from actually talking to people and, and asking them questions and not just observing them and watching what they do and trying to understand that, but actually asking them, why have you done this? Why are you behaving the way you're behaving? Um, tech can take, take us so far and it's taken us so much further the last five years than, than probably we ever thought would be imaginable to understand people and, 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 and monitor their behaviour and understand what they're doing. But I think, yeah, my, my actual fear is that we forget to actually ask people why they're doing stuff and, and what they actually think. Um, which is obviously not, I'm not anti-tech in any way, shape or form. Um, but I think we, you know, we should always remember that, you know, people are, at the end of the day, people, what you should interact, we should be interacting with people and understanding their, their motivations as well and listening to them directly. Yeah, yeah. it's like knowing the limitations almost of each side. Exactly, and that's, and that's where we're now in a beautiful world where we can merge in lots of different sources in, in a really holistic way, which I don't think we could possibly do um, five, ten years ago. And I think that allows us to have a much better picture of what people are doing. Um, the fear is the tech side of it is much quicker, much easier, potentially a lot cheaper, um, and can. but it, it, you can't downplay the importance of actually talking to people um, and understanding and, and getting to know them and really understanding them and the way they behave and why. Well, um, Maya, Rich, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. And thank you for listening to this episode of Sideload. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to get in touch, send an email to sideload at edelman.com. Goodbye.